Today marks the halfway point of September. We're already halfway through the month, way too quick. It's Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And it's a Friday where we try to lighten things up a little bit. I'm not sure we're doing that with the heavy stories we have today. We won't be talking about Dave Yost rejecting the second iteration of the constitutional amendment that would get rid of gerrymandering. That thing is confusing, and I think they're having a hard time summarizing it. They'll get it right eventually. We have other things to talk about with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Layla is up first. An Ohio Senate committee has been taking a close look at what happened with the train wreck in East Palestine and now has issued its findings. Layla, what does it recommend happens next? Well, the uh, the Committee on Rail Safety issued a 132-page report this week that said the water and soil around the train derailment site should be tested and monitored for at least 20 years. It's unclear which government office should be doing that testing according to the recommendations, but that was one of 10 recommendations that came out of this report. Other Others included working with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance to encourage final passage of their rail safety legislation, also provide additional resources for volunteer fire and EMS personnel, and promote improved communication between railways and local emergency management agencies in areas like the type of materials on board and emergency contact information for each rail line operator. And, you know, an, an after-chemical exposure community survey of the East Palestine Air, East Palestine area found 75% of the respondents reported headaches, 64% had anxiety, and 61% report coughing. So there is clearly some kind of environmental impact here. About 47,000 fish and, and other aquatic life were potentially killed in the waterways near the derailment. Norfolk Southern claims their testing shows the air quality and water quality are fine. But, you know, ProPublica and The Guardian, they pointed out in their report that Norfolk Southern's air testing wasn't designed to detect the full range of dangerous chemicals that could have come from the derailment, nor was air inside residents' homes tested for long enough to accurately capture the chemicals they were testing for. And the railway's air testing contractor has been accused of downplaying environmental risks in other huge disasters. So this bipartisan committee was formed in the weeks after their derailment to determine the best ways to support the people of East Palestine and to monitor and mitigate the fallout from the disaster and to safeguard from this happening again in the future. I suspect that if you polled any group of people about whether they've had coughing, anxiety, and headaches, you'd probably get close to 75%. (laughs) But what this really points out to me is that nobody trusts the railroad. Everybody is saying that we need long-term studies that are accurate and honest. And it's fascinating. Everybody wants those guardrails because nobody trusts the railroad to do the right thing. So so you have all these extra things. I mean, this is a civil case in, in the works, right? Anybody that has suffered real damage should be able to go to court and get a settlement for what they've suffered. But it's fascinating how no one trusts them and they shouldn't oh, yeah. trust them. Look, look, look what's happening. We talked yesterday about how J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown got together on some things to regulate the railroads and it stopped dead in its tracks because the railroad is working the back halls of Washington to not have it happen. And this report is evidence of that. What was nice about this one? It's bipartisan in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Democrats mm-hmm. and Republicans work together. Hey, high five. We have civility. 
But these people don't trust the government either. I mean, earlier they've called for independent testing, meaning not the government, not the railroad. I mean, is that going to be any better than, you know, the EPA testing? I I just it's sad that nobody trusts anything. Part of the distrust of government is born largely because Donald Trump has been out there pounding the pavement saying don't trust the government. So nobody does. But it's just a it's an interesting moment. We don't know what the truth is. We don't know how how badly or if they've been truly poisoned because nobody trusts any of the information. And that's a serious breakdown in society. And when the legislature comes in with the same level of distrust, you know, we're in trouble. You are listening to Today in Ohio. The battle between Brunswick and Strong... No, I'm sorry. It's Medina and Strongsville. I got this wrong, Lisa. Over a proposed Boston Road interchange on Interstate 71 has been ugly and fierce. Tom Patton put his finger on the scale for one side of the debate by putting into the budget bill a requirement that it be built. It's kind of an unprecedented thing. Mike DeWine stepped in to say he would work to resolve this fight. Now there's a new development. What is it? Yeah, and it's actually Strongsville in Brunswick. Yes, um, that's where the proposed interchange is supposed to go. Three lawmakers, all Republicans, Senator Mark Romanchuk of Ontario, Representatives Melanie Miller of Ashland and Sharon Ray of Wadsworth, introduced twin House and Senate bills yesterday to remove state budget language that required the controversial I-71 interchange to be built at Boston Road. And this is along the Strongsville-Brunswick border. Senator Tom Patton, the Republican from Strongsville, you know, inserted that ODOT mandate into the budget. And Strongsville is for the project. They say they want to ease uh, congestion on State Road 82. Brunswick officials and residents are vehemently against it. And uh, some of the officials from Brunswick have joined these representatives in supporting this new bill. Um, Brunswick resident Edward Radzeminski indulged in a little bit of hyperbole. He lives nearby and he says it's Attila the Hun fighting Mother Teresa. <laughs> so, okay. But Representative Ray and others are proposing alternatives. You know, they, they say they could build it north of Boston Road at either Drake or Shermer Roads. Patton says he's open to alternatives, but Shermer Road was rejected by federal highway officials. Drake Road has a fire station right there. And they he said if either one of these were viable, he would consider it. But apparently it doesn't seem to be the case. ODOT spokesman Matt Bruning says they've got a long way to go before they're deciding their next move. They have scheduled separate meetings with each of the parties this week to see if they can work something out. And Governor Mike DeWine said he wanted to bring these people together to negotiate this long-running dispute. It's been decades going on. And he said that when he signed the transportation budget. He said things are proceeding, but federal authorities need to approve and the opinions of local cities will factor into whatever decision is made, which is ridiculous because they're never going to come to an agreement. The sad part about this is we have a regional approach to deciding where we need interchanges. And NOACA, the North, whatever it's called, the planning agency for the entire region, puts all sorts of effort into it. They consider all sorts of factors before they recommend it. This is a longstanding dispute, but it, but NOACA has not moved forward on it. Patton got frustrated with the lack of attention to it, so he did something nobody's done before. He put it into law that it be built, which is not how interchange gets decided. But it worked to, to bubble this up to a fevered pitch. I tell you, I get a lot of mail from people on both sides of this that feel very, very strongly about it. And it's not clear what the answer is. And so 
the fact that it was in the law was probably the wrong way to go. So these legislators are trying to write that. But I don't I'm with you, Lisa. I don't know how you resolve this because they're just dead set opposed to it on one side and all in favor on the other. Right. And this, you know, where they're planning to put it at Boston Road is right on the border of the two cities. So Brunswick people can't argue that it's not a road that doesn't benefit them. So and I wrote, you know, we did a roundtable on this weeks ago and I was like, well, you know, this is the price of development. And, you know, Brunswick is saying, oh, well, they built up, you know, their corridor and that caused the, you know, the traffic congestion with all these big box stores. And it's like, well, that's how you get tax revenue. Well, it's clear, too. This will wipe out that Boston Road community, that neighborhood. Everybody along it is dead set opposed to this. Uh, This will take that out. But it's all a discussion about progress. It's your prototypical suburban fight, right? I mean, it's just fighting over a highway interchange. But it keeps being a controversial issue that is bringing a lot of people out of the woodwork. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The talker's story of the week has been the Cleveland Catholic Diocese issuing the strictest prohibition possible on pretty much anything having to do with LGBTQ issues. That seems to run counter to the Pope's perspective. Laura, where does Cleveland's policy stand in comparison to policies elsewhere? Apparently, we are pretty on point for the United States, which tends to be more conservative in its Catholic hierarchy. Toledo, for example, has a similar policy. So does Des Moines, Iowa, Worcester, Massachusetts. But it does have opposition to remarks from Pope Francis recently, who basically said the Americans are too conservative in the Catholic Church. He told Jesuit priests that he realized the struggles of homosexual Catholics and that everyone, everyone, everyone is called to live in the church. Never forget that. And that's what a Vatican news outlet quoted the Pope as saying. So, Molly Walsh and Hannah Drown talked to a professor of religious studies and gender studies at Case Western Reserve University. He said there's a real disconnect now between the beliefs and practices of everyday Catholics and the pronouncements of conservative bishops who are sometimes called traditionalist bishops. And I think you're seeing that play out in the comments that we're getting, that people who go to church consider themselves Catholics but don't agree with this policy, and that he said, that while this affirms what the Catholic Church teaches, there are many things the Catholic Church has taught over the decades, centuries, that we don't teach anymore. And I, you can look at a whole long list of things that the Catholic Church used to believe in that no longer is dogma. And we want to see if this changes, right? It's just that the Catholic Church has kind of fiefdoms and bishop to bishop, they can say their version of what the truth is. The male that we've received in the text messages have been overwhelmingly against this policy. People are writing about how hurt they are by what the ch- their church is doing. They still have their faith, but they don't believe in their church. People are talking about leaving, pulling their kids out of school. Uh, it, it's a serious moment for the Cleveland diocese because this rule does seem to be out of sync with the way most people believe there's a very strong faction that supports this that mm-hmm. completely agrees with it. But if our mail is any determined and then it's overwhelmingly against it, I'll be interested to see if and how priests in the pulpit this weekend deal with this. Maybe they'll be under orders by the Bishop, not to mention it, but you got to think that with so many parishioners talking about this and having strong things about it, the priests have pretty much got a responsibility to deal with it. What do they say? 
I look forward to hearing what they say this weekend. And I think it's going to depend on which priest is in the pulpit on, on the mass that I choose to go to, right? I have some I resonate with more, but it's too bad there's not a Q&A at the end of the homily. I would totally raise my hand for this and ask, but you're right. They might be told that they can't talk about it. Or, um, you know, the, the bulletin is another way that priests communicate with their parishioners. I'll wonder if it shows up in either priest's messages in the bulletin this week. We'd love to hear from people if they want to share what happens in their home church. Because remember, we talk about the Cleveland Diocese, but I think there are eight counties affected by this. It's a large swath of Ohio that is dealing with this. And Molly Walsh reached out to a bunch of other dioceses in the state. Uh, Steubenville, which I didn't realize had its own diocese, they have a school policy in place with gender and sexual identity. They chose not to make it public. The Archdiocese of Cincinnati did not respond to requests for interviews. The Diocese of Youngstown said its theological commission has studied and will continue to study this important question. So obviously other places, other Catholics are also wrestling with this question. How far they go, I think that's one of the things in Cleveland that we've been looking at is this isn't just we're going to call your parents if we think that you are having gender identity issues. This is like, don't wear a rainbow pride shirt. You know, don't put a sign in your yard. So, and it's for volunteers, students, staff, anybody in the, in the parish or the school. So it is really far reaching. Well, when you think about the number of people that go to the pride parade in Cleveland every year, and you've got to think that a percentage of them are Catholic and they're generally wearing the pride regalia, what do they do? Do they reject the church and get, you know, be on the wrong side of what the bishop is saying? Or do they go with acceptance and love and and the spirit of the day? It's funny because you look at the Unitarian Church. There's one at the end of my street and they have rainbows everywhere, right? So many churches are putting out this love is love message. And it's like, if I put a love is love sign in my yard, am I going to get excommunicated? Yeah, I, I, the, the, our audience has implored us to continue to explore this. We are continuing to explore this. Like I said, this has been the talker story of the and week. I have been impressed with the civil discourse that people have shown and the real heartfelt messages. So thank you to readers for not taking this to you know a culture war level and just expressing their feelings very heartfelt. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Case Western Reserve University has sometimes been viewed as a remote island in the Cleveland neighborhoods it adjoins, but there's a new president there these days. They've launched several things to bring and build some bridges, bring some more people in. They announced something new yesterday. Lisa, what is it? Yeah, this is actually a dramatic expansion of the Cleveland Scholars Program, which was established by Case Western Reserve in 2017, and it currently covers full tuition costs for eligible graduates of Cleveland and East Cleveland high schools. So now they've expanded that to provide free on-campus housing, free books, and other student costs will be taken care of. They will also receive a mentored paid research or campus internship. So this expansion means it's students no longer need loans to cover their non-tuition expenses. It eliminates a lot of financial uncertainty. Case Western Reserve University President Eric Kaler says, we want them to have any opportunity to thrive on our campus and they don't want cost to be a barrier to them going to Case. So the school will cover most costs, 
um, you know, with their own money. They're going to get some help from federal grants and some partner funding, including Say Yes Cleveland and College Now Greater Cleveland. Currently, there are 56 Cleveland scholars uh, enrolled at CASE. Uh, The expanded non-tuition assistance will begin in the fall of 2024. Cleveland School CEO Warren Morgan calls this an extraordinary act of generosity. When I, my kids were going to college and I was doing the calculations, it was stunning to me how much the non-tuition costs were. We always talk about what is tuition, but all that other stuff is huge in what it costs. And it has risen almost beyond the, the raises in tuition. So this is important because just giving a kid tuition still hits them with financial challenges that many cannot meet. This wipes that out. Right. And I, you know, I didn't think about that, that they, they were getting the free tuition, but they had to take out loans just to get their books and other things. Yeah. So expensive. Layla and Laura will be dealing with that in future years. They can, they'll be talking about it then. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, how can it be possible after everything that has been reported and come out about how wretched and disgusting the food is at the Cuyahoga County Jail, that the county is about to re-up with the same vendor who provides that glop. This is an outrage. It is. It's 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 hard to believe because the county just extended this contract by a few months to give the new sheriff, Harold Pretel, a chance to review the contract and figure out whether it was in the county's best interest. So did he do that? Is this what came of that review? It's another year-long extension. And not only that, but the cost of this contract is just stunning. A Tuesday, Cuyahoga County heard legislation that would give $7.9 million to Trinity Services Group to continue serving food at the county jail until September 30th of 2024. After Cuyahoga County extended the Trinity contract in July, the total three-year amount of the contract was $9.7 million. That's three years. That which that shakes out to 246000 and change per month, including the recent three-month extension. The one-year extension that's being proposed now is equal to 656000 per month. That is a monthly price increase of 166%. What are they thinking? Pretel, the sheriff, apparently did not complete the review he promised. Let's just be frank. He's one of the sponsors of this legislation, and a county spokeswoman said they hope this year long this year long extension will give them a chance to solicit other food service proposals. And as for the cost, the county spokeswoman is attributing the price hike to inflation and other factors. I'm sorry, I don't think we saw 166 percent inflation rate. But, but also, the newly proposed agreement includes several new provisions that officials hope will improve oversight and food quality. That's great, but is that the cause of no, this? No, uh, come on. No. Look, this is ridiculous. I, I, I'm just astounded. This is absolutely lazy. On the one hand, Chris Ronane gets up in front of all those people in Garfield Heights and all passionately says, we have got to take care of our wards. We've got to build a more humane jail. And in his first real step, where they can do something to improve their lives, they're going with the same 
defender that's done the disgusting glop. I, I'm amazed. We'd, we'd be better off having Cleveland schools do it. The Cleveland school lunches are better than the food we give inmates. Right. I, I, what does it work out to? Have we calculated what it is per meal? Because I bet if we figured out what it is per meal, we could oh, go around funny. to area different area food concerns and find you'd get a much higher quality level of meal. Nobody took the time. This is lazy. The county council, and, the county also, administration, their job is to do this. They're supposed to do the heavy lifting and come up with a solution, and they've copped out completely. And and don't forget also that Trinity's parent company runs the commissary at the jail, too. So it's in that company's financial interest to serve terrible food that drives inmates to spend their money at the right. commissary on snack foods to supplement their diets. And that was scandal when that right. came out. And they just don't care. Wow. I, it's it, it's just, they, I can't believe that th- this would have been an easy win for them. This is such an easy issue. To, you, you put out the RFP, you see what, what, where, what have they been doing? Nothing, right? obviously nothing. They claim to care. They get all emotional and make sad faces and talk about how passionate they are about fixing this. This is the clear sign. They have no interest in fixing this. This is, it's just outrageous. I still can't believe it. And not, the one thing I thought they would do is fix this because it's not that hard. Go, go find solutions. That's your job is to be innovative, to think outside the box, find a better way. We'll have to calculate what this is per meal. I, I bet it's I bet it's high. I just, bet they can go to McDonald's it, and buy meals cheaper than this or, right. you know, and what a school be, cafeteria be, does. Figure it out and just copy them. It's ridiculous. Right. I, you know, I also think it is it is really brazen for Trinity to jack up the price of this contract, given what we know about the food <laughs> quality and their and their conflict of interest. I mean, I can't believe that their quality control measures would contribute so heavily to the stunning cost of this contract. Their food is demonstrably terrible, well, and some would say inedible. So, and it's I can't believe it. And we just bend over look, for it, look, pay it. This is a city where we have Brandon Krastowski. Who has, who has gotten international acclaim by building a restaurant, a very high-end restaurant, and all sorts of assorted food concerns where he hires people as they come out of prison, trains them to work in the restaurant industry. It, he is one of the best innovators Cleveland's ever seen. Why aren't they talking to him? My bet is he would have solutions that, that would make a difference in the quality of the food. What are they doing to try and change this narrative? Absolutely nothing. Yeah, there's got to be some patronage there. We need to follow the money. Yeah, yeah, we will. I just, th- this is a, a huge abject failure by Chris Ronane and his administration. And the county council, once again, sits idly by, doesn't do a thing to make it right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, why did the Cuyahoga Arts and Culture Group vote to spend all of the remaining expected cash from a cigarette tax over the next two years? Isn't it possible that there will be no new money after this, meaning that's it for the funding of the arts groups? That is possible. It's not that likely. Cuyahoga residents generally renew countywide taxes, and they plan to do that again in November 2024. Not officially on the table, but that's what they're thinking. So I bet voters will renew it. This is a worst-case scenario plan they're talking about, spending $11.1 million a year for the next two years, giving it out to large cultural organizations, individual artists, community projects, and other recipients. The thing is, 
I cannot tell you why they chose this plan over two others that they considered because there's very little transparency in this group. And there's a whole lot of discord coming up in these meetings where artists are saying, we don't understand. Apparently there was a survey given out to the artists to say, what would you prefer out of their three scenarios? One left, actually, I think two left more money on the table, but they're not explaining it. They say they've already been in communication with the people they need to. And it's, I mean, it's not a, it's public money. It's coming from taxpayers, but there is not a lot of explanation or input when it comes to how they spend it. Yeah, I, I still, I always say this. I feel like this is the West Side market. The artists that want this money <laughs> are never going to be happy. They're True. always going to criticize this group. I, I know the people running it now are trying to be much more transparent than their predecessors. Whether they're being successful, you can argue. But there's a lot of noise around this, just like there's a lot of noise from vendors at the West Side market. And not all of it is legitimate. Yeah. And I mean, we have much less money to work with than when they originally passed this tax in the 90s. So we're down to, I think it was 20 million at one point. So we're like half of what they were talking about. The thing is, we can still, the the state legislature says we can levy this tax and they can increase it. Remember they were talking about vaping and then I think they took the vape products away because of a whole lot of pressure from vape yeah, companies. Yeah, because they're in the pocket of the vaping so industry. So it'd be nice if they could tax the vape products, but right now that's illegal under state law. They're allowed to raise the, the cigarette tax, but not so many people are smoking cigarettes anymore. So it's not a bottomless pit of money. Yeah, the legislature is bought off on that somehow because it makes sense to have vaping be part of right, it. It, it was in there. Right. And wasn't it the Senate that removed it? Wasn't it Matt Huffman's crew that took it out? So, I mean, probably... Way to go. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Adam Freese used some recent indictments to explore the path of illegal guns in Cleveland into the hands of criminals who are wreaking havoc on this town. We say all the time that it seems anyone who wants one can get a gun. Lisa, how are they getting them? Well, the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Bureau found out they did an undercover sting in the Cleveland area. They bought or seized 240 guns since June. These guns were selling for anywhere from $200 to $1,200. 59 people were arrested, and they found there was a pattern that these illegal gun sellers didn't care what happened to the guns that they sold. So for example, Nicholas Johnson, he was arrested. He sold 10 guns to undercover officers over a two week period. And he said, quote, I don't give an F if y'all kill a bunch of people, as long as my butt is clean. And he just didn't care. And one of the guns that he sold had been used in four shootings since October of 2021. Another guy that was arrested, 39 year old Maurice Starrett, he had a crew of like six people, including a juvenile that were selling guns. They sold 50 guns to agents at about $800 a piece, about $48,000 total. Those guns were involved in 16 shootings and a homicide. And these guns were sold in highly public areas like Steelyard Commons, the East 72nd Street Fishing Area, and other public areas. 26-year-old Willie Jackson, he was a former basketball star at Garfield High and University of Toledo. He was going to go to work at Holy Name Elementary School as a mental health counselor for students. He sold 33 guns to ATF agents between, between June and August. Three had been used in earlier homicides and three were used for other crimes. Some were ghost guns that Jackson's that Jackson made himself with kits that he bought online. And when he was asked, 
why he was selling easier, you know, uh, illegal guns. He said, well, it's easier that way. <laughs> well, way to go to the ATF in get clamping down on this, because think about that. For every one seller, how many shootings are, are, are happening? We just know about the ones that they've identified. There's probably way more from these guns that have caught wreaked havoc. And just taking one of those guys off the street cuts off whole branches of, of illegal gun sales. So fascinating story by Adam. It's on cleveland.com, but it'll be running in the plane dealer one of these days. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What do we know about the layoffs at the Joanne Fabrics headquarters in Hudson, Layla? The company seems to be playing this one pretty close to the vest. A spokesperson on Thursday confirmed that there were layoffs, but did not answer any questions about how many employees were let go or how many of them worked at the headquarters in Hudson. She said the company had been exploring every opportunity to improve profitability, drive top line growth, and operate the business more efficiently. And that included restructuring operations at both the store and corporate level over the past few months. And these layoffs were a part of that. So the company has 831 stores spread across 49 states and had just announced in August that it planned to hire another 5,000 part-time workers for the holidays. So that's got to bamboozle these these employees who've been let go. But in its most recent earnings report, Joanne's net sales were down by 3.1% in the first six months of 2023 compared to last year. And the company had a net loss of $127.5 million in the first half of 2023. So I guess the writing has been on the wall. You got to think the cost of the brick and mortar stores and staffing them is obscenely high when you can do a mail order business and save all that money. And I wonder if the mail order competition is just restricting their ability to sell stuff. Maybe, but we're talking about fabric. You got to got to feel that <laughs> right yeah you got to see it you got to feel it you got to i mean that i mean i would agree with you in in every way other than that i mean like uh, bed bath and beyond that's one that went completely you know they're online exclusively now but you can still buy stuff from bed bath and beyond but their brick and mortar is done um but in this case i i would i don't think i would trust an online operation to for you know Do you buy clothes online like, no. I hate doing that. <laughs> no. I mean, I really do. Because you never know if they're going to fit. Here's the thing. Free returns on clothes, right? You got to do free returns. And the thing is, and if you're ordering fabric, you're ordering it cut and you want... Yes. And I have ordered fabric online, like for pillows or something. But you're right. You are taking a bit of a gamble and you cannot return fabric once it's cut. At least I right, don't that's think true. you can. No. Okay. There you go. Some expertise on the fabric industry. <laughs> That's it for Friday for Today in Ohio. That's it for the week. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens. Enjoy the Saturday weather. We'll be back Monday talking about the news.